Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today once again we have a very cool guest on the show. We have Dr. Yona who is a senior research manager in geochemistry. Welcome to the show Dr. Yona. Hello, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? So my job title is the senior research manager as you said but my actual job is probably better described as lab manager. So what I do, I look after a so-called clean lab for geochemistry. And in this lab, we prepare our geological samples for later analysis. Do you want me to describe what I what that means and what I do? Go into a bit more detail? Yeah, that'd be fantastic. And maybe if you can explain what a clean lab is, because in my head, most labs would be clean. <laughs> so first of all, What is a clean lab? A clean lab, we call a lab that has a very low particle count in the air. And the reason why that is important is because we analyze very, very tiny amounts of stuff, of elements. So we analyze element amounts of nanogram in the nanogram range. So it goes gram, milligram, microgram, nanogram. So it's not much. And that's the reason why we don't want any contamination from the outside world. Although we look at samples from the outside world, but we really want to keep that sample by itself, not joining anything else (laughs) from the outside world. So our labs, as I said, need clean air, so a low particle count. And that's what a clean lab basically is. Okay, so the clean lab, that is fascinating. I have never thought about geology being analysed in terms of nano anything. Like I've always, you tend to think about like big scale things like mountains, for example. And what are some of the things that you would look at that are so small? So we don't necessarily look at small stuff, but the reason our sample sizes are so small is because we analyse individual elements for their compositions. What I mean by composition is we look at their isotopic composition. So most elements are made up of different isotopes. An isotope is basically a variation from the basic atom of an element. So every atom of an element is different. So they have a different number of electrons, protons and neutrons. And the, so the number of a proton and the electron defines what kind of element it is. But the number of neutrons can vary in that atom. It makes it still the same element, but because neutrons carry quite a lot of mass, it changes the mass of that atom. So it's still the same element, but a different mass. And that's what we call an isotope. So most elements in the periodic table have more than one isotope. An exemption is, um, for example, gold. Gold only has one isotope. But a lot of other or most of the other elements have several isotopes. And what we can do, so that composition, so basically how much uh, of each isotope is present in my sample, that's what we mean with isotopic composition. 
and that can change with certain geological processes or with age because some of these isotopes are not stable. They don't like the combination of neutrons and protons they have and they decay, so they fall apart. They either form then or decay into an isotope of the same element or to a different element. And that's why we have so small sample sizes because we take a huge rock, we mill it down to a very fine powder, which is as fine as flour, and then we take a few milligrams of that, we dissolve it in a bunch of acids, and then we separate the elements from each other, and then we have a few nanograms of that one certain element and a few nanograms of another certain element, and then we can analyze the isotropic composition and, yeah, figure out geological processes, ages, whatever the question is that we look at. That's fascinating. It's a whole world I didn't know existed within geology. What are some of the questions that you would use these processes to find the answer to? So there are a few big questions in geology that we don't have a definitive answer to, and that's a lot of that early Earth stuff. As probably everyone knows, our Earth is made up of tectonic plates, and these plates move. And when they move, they sometimes swallow each other up, basically, at subduction zones. So rocks get recycled. They don't really get destroyed, but they get recycled. So they're not there as their original rock. They just melt and form something different. So what we do not have is samples or rocks from the early Earth because they are all remelted and all reworked into different rocks. So we cannot just pick up a very, very old rock and look what kind of rocks were there at the start and how did they look like. We can't do that. And so we use these isotopic traces in certain minerals to learn more about the early Earth, because all we know is that the early Earth looked very different to the Earth we have now. So at the start, we didn't even have continents. We think we know we didn't have continents. <laughs> but that's all uh, geochemistry is really useful to, to trace back these processes, these, these continents, these rocks that don't exist anymore. Yeah, right. That's like big question kind of stuff. It sort of sounds like someone who's sitting down and trying to do their family history tree and they're like going through like all the records that they can find and stuff and you've this is one way of unlocking some of those records is through this really detailed understanding of those isotopes yeah that's a really good analogy i like that <laughs> thank you it's just like this is what it what it would sound like if a rock wanted to find out its history yeah <laughs> where did i really come from <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Okay. So I've never thought about that problem. Like you sort of think that most rocks that get created, like they sort of get ground down into sand and that sort of stuff. Not that they actually get completely recycled. Obviously it makes sense when you say it now, but I hadn't thought about that problem of that there wouldn't be samples like hiding somewhere in a cave or I don't know, on the top of a really big hill or something where you could just be like, oh, this, this is like back in the day kind of stuff. Yeah. Are there any particular 
projects you're working on at the moment that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so at the moment, I'm working on a project where I'm trying to understand a bit more about the subduction zones that I mentioned earlier. So mainly looking at how, so a subduction zone, maybe not everyone's probably familiar with that. So if these tectonic plates move, and because our Earth is basically a ball, if they meet each other and they push towards each other, then usually one plate is pushed underneath the other one. It's usually the the heavier plate is pushed under the lighter one, and that creates a subduction zone. And in these subduction zones, we have, for example, volcanism, because when this plate goes down, because the earth is warm, the further you go down, the warmer it gets. So these rocks melt, and then that melt is more buoyant than the rock surrounding it, so it wants to go up and then keep going. Volcanoes. This, this is a, we know a lot about subduction zones and there's a lot we understand, but there are a few little things that we don't really understand. And one is the role that water plays in all of this. So how's water moving in these subduction zones? And that's one thing that I'm at the moment working on. I don't know what I thought water would do. Maybe just get turned into steam and blown away because it's too hot. So the the water in the subduction zone can go into minerals. It can help. It can help create magmas in the subduction zone. So that's all mechanisms that we do not fully understand yet. What's really happening with the water down there? And yeah, we can't really sample it. So you can't just go and drill into a subduction zone and just you know look at it. So yeah, I'm using an element that's called molybdenum. And that changes its isotopic composition, probably in the presence of minerals that contain water. We call them hydrous minerals. This is fascinating because you kind of like, obviously you can't send a probe, for example, at the moment because it would just melt. So you kind of have to wait for the process to have passed and been done. And then you can sample it and work out what happened. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's really cool, but it's it'd also be a little bit frustrating knowing it's happening right now and no one can quite observe what's happening there right now. Yeah, one of the problems is that you can't really drill that deep because it just gets too hot for the drill equipment. So you, at certain depth, we don't really have samples. We have to wait until they come up to the surface. And then, of course, they're already different other a million other processes that could influence these rocks and then we have to pull apart which is the process that I'm interested in and which ones are processes that happen after. It's all a very big puzzle. <laughs> it's a huge puzzle. It's three well it's four dimensional because it's all happening in time as well. Like there's a lot going on in this. Yeah. <laughs> and just remember people this is happening if not under your feet then on the globe right now constantly. Yeah. What does an average day at work look like for you? So an average day looks like that I spend a lot of time in the lab, either helping helping people doing stuff. So we have a lot of PhD students or honor students that use our labs and supervising them, showing them how to do their element purifications, how to treat their samples and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of um, research support. I'm also there to this general, what you do in the lab every day is like cleaning stuff and 
checking that you have enough of that and this. And I also clean the lab myself or with the help of the others. So we have a roster and we clean it ourselves. Because the work we do is so specialized and we analyze a lot of these really weird elements no one thinks about, we don't want any cleaning products in there because they have they can have elements that you know no one really thinks about it but they can have elements that we want to analyze and then we mess up everything so clean the lab ourselves not every day but like every week or every two weeks depending on how busy it is and then because i also help looking after our analyzing equipment so these are the instruments that we use then to analyze this isotopic composition in the elements. So I help looking after them. There's a lot of maintenance we have to do. Basically every day I go into the office or into the lab, I don't know what will happen that day. I mean, I have things planned, but usually there's something coming up here. Someone needs help there. So I'm quite flexible. And that's also what I like about my job, that I basically never know what's going to happen. I'm speaking probably pre-COVID times. At the moment, it's pretty quiet <laughs> because most people are still working from home. But yeah, usually it's people coming, asking questions, and I help here and there, and then do the stuff I had planned. So yeah, it's it's every day is different. So there's a lot of talking to people and also a lot of enabling others to be able to do their own research, which is obviously always a cool thing. Yeah, yeah. That's what I really, really like, working with other people, the whole research support, lab support. Yeah, it's really interesting because you work with a lot of people, as you said, and you learn about, a lot about their projects, what they're doing. So it's very versatile and very interesting because, yeah, and sometimes you have visitors that are only there for a couple of months and then you also learn about other labs work and what they do, what their standards are. I can always learn something new because they have cool ideas how to organize this and that. And yeah. Do you mind if I ask, what do you wear in the lab? It sounds like an environment where you'd have to be quite suited up in clean room gear. Yeah. So we wear lab coats and they're not your normal lab coats that you know from that other labs or from student labs, they are lint-free lab coats. So not these cotton ones that you usually see. Of course, safety glasses, very important. We wear hairnets and some men has to have to wear beard nets. So yeah, every, cover everything. <laughs> we wear lab shoes, so you have to change your shoes. So that changing the shoes has really two reasons. One is of course safety. Because in summer, you can't wear flip-flops in the lab. You can't wear high heels in the lab. So that's one reason that we change shoes. It's safety, so that they are flat, they are comfortable, they are enclosed. But the other reason actually is, again, cleanliness. Because you would not think how much dirt is under your shoe. <laughs> and that's exactly the dirt we don't want in the lab. So yeah, we change shoes and we also have um, right at the entrance, we have little sticky mats you have to, so you change in your lap shoes and then you walk over a sticky mat and that then takes up every dirt that might still be there. Yeah, right. You know, people don't have to wear masks, like obviously excluding the whole COVID thing, but I sort of was imagining people might breathing on this stuff could cause problems. 
Yeah, it can. For some elements, it actually can. You're right. But we do all the work in fume hoods. So there are a few habits that you quite quickly pick up when you work in that sort of environment. And one is you never speak over your open beakers. So have you, if you have open beakers in your, on your lap bench and you talk to someone, you turn away from your beakers. You also never reach across open beakers because anything from your cuff from the lap cord can fall into these beakers. So yeah, this is the tiny little habits that you pick up. And then you might do it at home at the breakfast table, not reaching over an open glass of marmalade because you're just a bit paranoid. (laughs) It's just a habit you pick up. (laughs) This definitely sounds like it's a job for someone with a high level of attention to detail. Definitely, definitely. And that's actually um, probably the first thing I tell everyone that's new to, to lab work. Never rush in the lab because it's also a safety issue, of course, but you, you also mess up your samples. So if you think, oh, I have half an hour, I quickly do this and that. No, don't do that. It's really, you have to have time in the lab. And we don't have a clock in the lab for that reason as well, so that you're not rushing and looking at the time because you have to be in your zone, doing your thing, not thinking about time, not rushing it. It's really important. It's also important because we deal with some very nasty assets that can be very dangerous. So you really have to take your time and make sure you just work on your thing without rushing. That sounds very wise. I mean, it's good advice for life anyhow but yes in this particular instance I can just imagine like the wrong sneeze and a year's worth of work just like yeah (laughs) what is your favorite part about this job what helps you get up in the morning and put on the lab shoes and the hair nets and everything I think my favorite part is that the every day is different and that I work with a lot of different people and do a lot of different things. And it's one, it's different projects I work on. It's also the work I do is very, as I said, I do like the lab management. I do the ordering of stuff. I do cleaning. I do supervision of students. I do committee work. I do all kinds of stuff. I do my own research as well. So it's like, it's always something different and it's not every day is the same kind of office job. And then as well, so I, I have work I can do from home. I can have, I have work that I can do from the office and I have work that I do in the lab, either the clean lab or with the instruments. So it's, it's not only very different in, in terms of what I do, but also where I do it. And I like that being active the whole day and, and doing this and that and not sitting down eight hours a day working on the computer. Which not just isn't healthy, but it's just not good for your brain. Yeah, I agree. How have you ended up in this role? Like what was your path from high school to where you are now? Yeah, that's quite a windy path, I would say. I love a windy path. I'm I'm distrustful of straight paths. (laughs) Yeah, probably right. So, yeah, I... um, from Germany, as you can probably hear, I have a bit of an accent. So I grew up in Germany. I went to uni in Germany and I studied geology, not really knowing where this is going to take me. I had a bit of different plans rather than going into geochemistry. I wanted to be more like an 
geological engineer, so looking at building sites and maybe environmental geology, like doing, you know, assessments of contaminated sites or something like that. I had one or two students' jobs in that area, and I, I thought that's what I'm going to do. And then we had a relatively new professor, and he taught geochemistry. And I thought, oh, yeah, sounds interesting. I just have a look, have a listen. And that basically hooked me. So I think after the first week, I said, okay, I think I'm going into geochemistry because this sounds really cool. So in, in Germany, we do, or we did at the time, a diploma, which is a bit like an honours. And I did that in geochemistry. I did a bit of field work in New Zealand, which was really cool. So I spent six months in New Zealand doing field work there for my work, for my thesis. And then... After, uh, while still doing my honours, I was basically asked by my supervisor, would you be interested in doing a PhD afterwards? And I did my PhD then in geochemistry. And after that, at the end of that, my then partner and I, we moved to Amsterdam because he had a postdoc there. So we met at uni and we did the same stuff. We did the fieldwork in New Zealand together and everything. So we uh, moved to Amsterdam. And... We had a few children, so I wasn't really working at the time. And then we moved to Canberra because he had another postdoc there. And then I started because the kids were a bit older, so I started working again. And I started as a preschool teacher because they had a they have a German Australian preschool in Canberra, and they were looking for a teacher. And I thought, oh, that's cool because it's only a few hours per week. So I worked for a year there, which was really cool. And then I got a job offer from the university in Canberra, working in a lab, in a clean lab, but not in geology. That was in solar cell research. And that was really interesting and different. So I worked as a research officer there doing basically a lot of the experiments in the lab for the academics and then report back the results. And then it just went from there. And I did that for a couple of years and then got an offer from the university in Melbourne to yeah, work as a lab manager here because they had just more or less, they were changing the direction of their current geochemistry lab a little bit and needed someone to look after that lab. So they didn't have a clean lab manager before. Um, so I then moved to Melbourne and here I am still. That's a fantastic path. That's great. It's a bit of a penguin sliding down a hill back and forth and left and right. <laughs> what was fun about teaching the kindergarten? Oh, the, the kids were, were great. I really loved being with the kids. They, you know, there were some because it was German, Australian ones. So we had one group of kids that were sort of fluent in German. And then we had one group that was there to learn German. So it was very different, the two groups. They were on different days. And it was really interesting to see how children learn a new language. And I had the same experience with my own kids when everyone was saying, oh, when you move to Australia, it's not a problem. They pick up the second language like a sponge. And that was not my experience at all. They had quite, or my oldest had a bit of a hard time learning English, although she was only three. And it was, I think that was my experience there as well, that it's not like they learn quicker than adults, but it's not like, you know, you talk to them for like three hours once a week and they just magically 
learn the language by that. It's a bit more involved. But it was really interesting to see also how how different the kids learn the language. Yeah, right. That's a fascinating like little addition to your repertoire of knowledge to have. Yeah. <laughs> and you got to go to New Zealand for field work. That would have been pretty exciting, like coming from Germany. Yeah, it was oh, it was great. It was really cool. We yeah. Did you get to go anywhere particularly cool? I think I've seen every road on the South Island because that's where we spent most of our time. So, yeah, I think I know every little side road there and little towns that looked like towns on the map turned out to be a petrol station and two houses. Classic. (laughs) Yeah, you kind of learn if you come from Central Europe, you kind of read the map differently afterwards so if you see a dot on the map with a name you know if you come from central europe then yeah that's like a little town but once you've been to new zealand and it's the same in australia i think in some places yeah there's a dot on the map and it has a name but that doesn't really mean it's a town it might be just a petrol station If you're lucky, it could be a ghost town, like where there used to be a town and now there's like a chimney and that's all that's left. It's quite a range of options. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The same as lakes. Don't trust lake. Just because it has a lake marked on the map doesn't mean it has water in it. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's cool. I like that also, you know, obviously the skills that you used in that photovoltaic lab, that will have been really useful for setting up this lab in Melbourne. Oh, definitely. And I think that sort of also sparked my interest in moving into more of a lab managing role because I learned a lot about um, lab management. It was quite a big lab. We had like, I think, 60 or 70 people working in that lab. So it was quite big. So our lab is a lot smaller. But yeah, I learned a lot from our lab manager there how to organize a lab and how to organize safety in a big lab and how to organize meetings and all that kind of stuff. So I learned a lot from her. And I think I had thought about this kind of career path before, but working there and also assisting her in some ways with some little things that I think made me realize, yeah, this is something that I could really be interested in and I can see myself doing. It's very cool because it, like, I feel like as a student going into a lab, it's kind of easy just to take it for granted that just all the things are there and they all work and there's lab coats there and, you know, they're all organized and you don't necessarily think about actually those whole careers in making sure these things work. Yeah. Clearly you need more visibility over this as an option because it's important. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. What advice would you give to a young person who is considering this kind of career? I think the best advice for me would be be flexible because our area is quite niche, I would say. So they are, I think you have to be very adaptable what kind of work in geochemistry you really would be doing. So if you, you know, it's good to set your mind to something, of course, but we also all know how the world really works and that it's not, you know, if you set your mind being, you know, 
a really great researcher, you might be unlucky and not get a grant or you are unlucky and not get a position. So it's good to have dreams and these desires, but I think it's also very important to be flexible. And if that one thing you really wanted doesn't really work out, to have a plan B and to be a bit adaptable in how you do your work. Yep. And sort of accepting that there's other paths to get to maybe not exactly the same result, but to similar results. Like, you know, you're not a associate professor, but you still get to do a your own research, which is awesome. Not everyone gets that. And you get to help other people with it. Yeah, definitely. And I think for me, the really important thing is, so of course you have things that you really need in your work, right? You can't. So I, I really need science in my work somehow, but I'm pretty flexible in what kind that is. And I think I also need, it's probably not true what I just need science. I think I need geology science. <laughs> and I say that because the, the years I worked in solar cell research, it was really interesting and I learned a lot. But I also realized that from a science point of view, I had not that much to give. I had a lot to give in, you know, doing the stuff in the lab. I'm really good working in a lab, but I couldn't contribute to the whole scientific discussion behind my experiments. And that after a while frustrated me a little bit because I thought this is not, I can't go anywhere from here. So I think I need the science I know stuff about in the background. I think that makes a huge amount of sense. And there's a lot of wisdom in that as well of if you can find out the things that you need, instead of getting focused on, I need to have this title or I need to have like this grant or whatever. But if you can work out what the core things are that you actually need in your role in your day-to-day and then look at all the different ways of achieving that rather than getting focused on like the external kind of stuff like titles. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you contributed a lot in the photovoltaic stuff though. I even have a publication from that. (laughs) That's cool. Not first author, of course, but I'm on a paper. (laughs) There's a huge amount of chemistry and... I mean, at some point there's geology because you have to dig it up and not in the, yeah. Are there any myths or misconceptions about the work that you do, whether it's like working in a lab or as a lab manager or in geology in general or geochemistry? Like, are there any myths or misconceptions that you come across that you'd like to take this opportunity to do a bit of myth busting? Sure. So I think one thing that you touched upon already is, that forgotten research support stuff in geochemistry. There's a lot of focus on the actual research and the researchers and the papers that come out. But as you said, people go in the lab and think everything is just there, but not a lot of people think about how it got there. And also getting the data on the instruments requires a lot of knowledge of the instruments, of the whole science behind it, of the science behind geology and geochemistry. And we have support stuff in the lab that helps researchers get their data and yeah they're they're sometimes a bit forgotten that they're there and providing all this stuff for the researchers to do their work and I would like to see that more acknowledged that would be great sounds good so shout out to all the lab managers and the lab workers because yeah all the lab techs and the lab manager and the research support workers also the admin staff that you know help us get or the financial stuff sorted and that sort of thing. So yeah, definitely all the, all the background people. And yeah, one thing about geology is I, I think 
a lot of people see geology as the same as mining and mining is bad. And that's often the narrative. And I would like to see people having a more detailed look at geology because that's not all we do. Not everyone works in mining and also not all the mining is bad. I mean, I'm not coal mining. I'm not for that. We should close the coal mines. <laughs> but there's a lot of mining for, you know, minerals and elements we need for batteries, for, for phones, for all the technology that we need to tackle climate change require these elements and that requires mining. And mining can be done in an environmental friendlier way than it is at the moment. And a lot of research is done into that space as well. And I think not a lot of people see that and know that. So that was two important things, listeners. One, and not all geology is mining, which you really should know by now if you've been listening to the podcast, because there's a lot of different kinds of geology. And of course, not all mining is evil because, you know, whatever you're listening to this podcast on, whatever you're wearing, whatever you're sitting on, all of it has come at some point something related to mining. So it's important that we invest in it so that we can make it more efficient and effective and environmental, etc. Big fan of that message. Uh, funnily enough, the world isn't as simple as like geology equals mines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably a good advice for life. The simple solution is not always the right one or the simple answer is Maybe not the right one, because the world is really complicated, not only in science, but also in our society and communities. It is a lot more than a simple one sentence message. Yeah, just because it makes a good headline doesn't mean it's actually true. They're good myths. They were great. I don't know how we'll get across the idea of geology being more complex, but we can only keep working on it. <laughs> is there anything else we haven't touched upon that you'd like to share? We need more women in geology. <laughs> Even though all the geologists who've been on this podcast have been women. Oh, that's great. <laughs> there's sort of a subsection, that, you know, there's a lot of space for more women. <laughs> yeah. I think in general, we need a more diverse cohort in geology because it's not only a lot of men, it's just a lot of white men. So, yeah, we need, we really need more diversity in geology. I think that's a good it's a good chat up. I mean, more diversity everywhere is always good, but yeah, does seem like geology is a little bit of a holdout. I said that you didn't. So just to start wrapping up, have you got a shout out for us? So a virtual high five for someone or someone's who you think is doing an awesome job and all the listeners should give high fives to. I really like the Deadly Science Initiative. Yeah, high five to them. For those who aren't aware, Deadly Science is uh, Corey Tut who are run by Quarry Tut, obviously. There's a bit of a team there now, and they send science books and kits and all sorts of bits and bobs into remote Indigenous communities to make sure that they have access to cool resources, and they spend a lot on postage. So, yeah, awesome group doing an awesome job. So high fives. Yeah, high fives. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Yona. It has been an absolute delight and I'm hoping everyone now has a greater appreciation for their lab techs and managers. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Research this year, that would be amazing. 
you can buy us a coffee head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment thanks so much for listening you're a legend